You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. Oh, good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Permit me not to be separated from you. From the wicked foe, defend me. At the hour of my death, call me. And bid me come to you, that with your saints I may praise you forever and ever. Amen. 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 You may be seated. This evening, that Saint Ignatius knows how to write a prayer. All right, so we're going to open up a brief series on spiritual warfare, everybody's favorite topic, and. It's better than when Jeff Haynes goes off and is in the club on a Sunday morning. Okay, we're good. Speaking of spiritual warfare, we're going to talk about this, and there are five or six categories to talk about spiritual warfare in. Um, the ones that make it onto TV is the category of like personal, a person is possessed or under attack or something along those lines, and we'll, we'll get there over the next few weeks. But what I want to start with is, I want I think it's, it's maybe, well, I don't think it's boring, but I'm, I'm a nerd when it comes to this stuff. But it's, it's the spiritual warfare, and I think it's the most important kind, and it's the kind that the church is always, as a group, under attack. Right? It's there's there's Satan does not want to start with you. He wants to start with us. And if he can mess us up, and one of the ways he messes us up is getting us to not see ourselves as an us, but a me. And then and then the world opens up to him. Right? And so I want to start with the idea that when it comes to spiritual warfare and then when it comes to the way that we view our sin and the sin of others, when we're not paying attention, it gets very militant. It gets very aggressive. And it starts to lose its mercy and grace. And it becomes wooden. It becomes tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It becomes judgmental. And it becomes very aggressive. So I'm going to start. It is a Bible study. I'm going to read all the scriptures we're going to use up front. So I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures for you. Ian will have them here. Just sort of let these stories wash over you. You'll probably see as I read them a theme. And then we're just going to go through simply seven temptations that the armor of God in Ephesians 6 reveals that we as the people of God go through. Okay? 
again, this is not a monologue. And uh, Jacqueline and I have learned, forget the whole first half, I'll talk, second half, we can ask questions. Just talk, interrupt me, ask questions, make comments, share your feelings, share your opinions. This is a topic that I can do cleanly in four or five weeks. Tonight, I could do cleanly in four or five weeks. I have no agenda. I don't need to get to a certain point. We can pick up again in the spring. We can pick up through the summer. There's, there's The beauty of this is it's, it's I'm trying to facilitate a discussion with content. So share, talk. If, something, if you want me to repeat something, if there's an idea that we're moving too fast on, or if you just have an experience or something you want to share, let's... Put it all on the table, okay? Amen. Literally interrupt me. I, I will talk as long as you want me to, but I look forward to hearing what anybody has to say as well. So, we'll start with my personal favorite story in the Bible growing up, and that is... <laughs> Actually, he's on a plane because we were late for him. He was waiting for your mom. Nice. My mom. Nice. All right. David and Goliath. <laughs> David and Goliath we'll start in verse 8 so this is now starting with Goliath and we'll initially go to verse 11 Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel what have you why have you come out to draw up for battle listen to the words of Goliath here it's how Satan talks am I not a Philistine are you not servants of Saul there's a trick are you not servants of Saul or not or servants of God led by Saul. Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man, one man, that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's skip to verse 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle. Now keep in mind that it says the host was going out to battle. This is important for what David says to Goliath later. The host was going out to battle. When he sees Goliath, what does he say? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brother. Sometimes we have to walk away from our baggage and trust it to somebody else so we can work on something and then come back to it. Just a sidebar for you. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Phil- and again, the Bible's making a point, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled from him, and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. 
And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And listen to this diss that Paul levels against David. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Think about the nuance there. You're just a youth, and he's been a man since his youth. He's been a man of war since his youth. In other words... When he was your age, he was better than you are now. How much better than you is he by now? Rude. Very rude. Verse 38. I don't have anything to say about that. It's just rude. (laughs) Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped a sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine, and we all know what happens. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. All right. David took Saul's armor off. Correct? Now, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not yours. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Don't take armor off, put it on. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and have done all, To stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And what does that sword look like? Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Take your armor off, put the armor on, now we're going to go to Matthew chapter 4, a couple verses. In verse 8, this is the initial final temptation of Jesus. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to him, All these kingdoms I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. One more text. Matthew chapter 11, 12 to 15. 
from the day, this is Jesus talking, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, not David, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. A lot of text, but there's a theme. So, Ian, we could just go right to the chart, the beginning of the chart. We're going to go through seven temptations that the armor of God reveals. So, like, the armor is defensive equipment that we're putting on, and each piece of armor that Paul describes reveals a vulnerability that we have. Every piece of armor reveals a vulnerability that we have. So, just hear me on this one point real quick. One of the hallmarks of demonic warfare in the life of a believer is that we mystify the wrong things and make literal the wrong things. I will give you an example. We have mystified the armor of God. If you grew up in the evangelical or Pentecostal church specifically, the armor of God has been this mystical, magical, almost sacramental reality that we strap on and we go to war and we fight and it's like this this deeply spiritual like beyond the natural experience and then if you grow up in the Pentecostal church the Eucharist was basically a symbol for something else but in reality the armor of God is silly Paul was in prison he saw a man with armor every day of his life Basic stuff that people put on, and he's sitting there in prison writing and saying, What can I, how can I explain to the people what this is like? And he just sees what he sees every day a man in a uniform. He's like, I'm just going to use this guy's uniform to explain what's going on. Eucharist, somehow, not naturally and not metaphorically, but sacramentally, becomes the body and blood of Jesus. But we're tempted to mystify violence and literalize and make boring the gift that Jesus gave us. As Chris Green said, the gun has become the anti-sacrament. A sacrament is a way that God gives us grace. So the Eucharist is one of the ways that God gives us grace. He said the gun has become an anti-sacrament. It's mystical to us. But it takes away grace. Takes away mercy. So that's one of the ways God wants us to be mystical. He wants us to be spiritual. He wants us to see analogies and things in the spirit. But the enemy wants us to do that too, just with the wrong things. Right? Like somebody uh, recently said, one of the reasons, and we're not going to talk in detail about this, this time, but one of the reasons why it's so easy for media and stuff to make sex so available to us, and one of the reasons why that industry is one of the leading industries in the entire world by leaps and bounds, is not because of the actual visual of what you're seeing, it's the way 
that they're presenting a way that we could do something secretly. It's the hidden nature of it that really makes us buy into it. We're doing something sneaky when we're looking at things we shouldn't look at. And that's us mystifying something we shouldn't mystify. Because it's not the image, it's the, the something about the, the, what it's encloaked in, what it's hidden in. So Jesus said it, men loved, and women, loved the darkness. There's something mystifying about it. And so Satan wants us to mystify the wrong things, and to just see as boring the things that we should be getting all oogly out about. So the gun, or the armor, and the Eucharist are just an example of that. But take that for what it is. That's not essentially what I'm talking about tonight, but... Temptation number one. Send out a man to fight you. The armor of God in Ephesians 6. Bill Berlusconi does not have his helmet of salvation. And Jacqueline does not have her helmet of salvation. And Dan doesn't have a particular sword of the spirit that was given to him. We, we, as the body of Christ, wear the armor of God. It's not like the spiritual gifts where we each have a thing. The armor of God is what the church wears. And you see it with Goliath, and you've heard me say this before, but it it bears repeating now. Goliath doesn't want to fight Israel. The Philistines are scared of the entire Israelite army. But Goliath knows, if I could get them thinking that they need to send out one person, We can wear them down into believing that they're as strong as the strongest individual. Send out a man to fight me. Goliath knows he could be a man. But if the whole Israelite army went out, Goliath would go down in two seconds. And Israel already was more powerful than the Philistines. So the Philistines try to make Israel fight on different terms. Mystify the individual. And see as boring the ranks and the hosts. Pull out the individual. Make make everybody think the individual is the most important. And I got them. Right? I've always said that what should have happened is Goliath should shout, send out a man to fight me. And Israel should have walked out all 10,000 of them and said, here I am. Here I am. Here's the one man. What does God say about Israel? Israel is my firstborn one person, all of you together. When, it, when Paul says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, every good Bible you buy has a footnote that says the you is plural. I'm only, I'm, I'm a vessel in the temple of God by myself. With you, I am the temple of God. But not by myself. By myself, I'm like a light socket in the temple of God. Or a door. But together, when I'm connected to you, on the temple. But we've, into, we've, we've, we've mystified the individual. That is precisely the temptation of Goliath, which is revealing the temptations that Satan always wants to do. It's no wonder that Satan tempts Jesus when he's in the wilderness alone. Doesn't come to him when he's with his twelve. Doesn't come to him when he's feeding the five thousand. He shows up when Jesus is alone and hungry. Because he wants Jesus to think it's about you, just you. 
is what he does. So that's always the first container. So when we read the armor of God, it's like this morning, I'm going to put on my belt of truth. I'm gonna... The only way you can do that is if you are connected to a whole body that's doing that. Because we don't fight on Goliath's terms. We put on the belt of truth. We wear the helmet of salvation. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's what you talked about Sunday. The church. We try to talk about this a lot. Yes. We are the body. Jesus is the head. We are the body. He wants to rest his head on. Yes. And the church is not the bodies of Christ. It's the body. What does Paul say? You are the body of Christ, and individually what? Members of it. Pieces of it. Vessels in it. Part of the bricks and the stones, right? What does what Peter say? We're holy stones that he's gathering into a temple. Right? Well, I mean, just one more, just for its fun, because it's popping off in my head now. Peter says, look at the stones of the temple. Aren't they beautiful? And what does Jesus say? Somebody tell me. Not one stone shall be left upon another. Notice what the enemy wants to do. Jesus is pointing out that right now all these stones are unified as one. And Jesus is saying the enemy is going to come and throw each one down. The enemy is going to come and try to dismantle the structure so that it's a bunch of individuals. Like, a temple built out of stone is called a temple. Those stones, no longer connected, is called rubble. We are the temple. Right? Right. So... It's only when they're cemented together that it's the temple. Temple stones not unified is simply rubble. Yeah. And wasn't Peter looking forward to the wall? Yes, exactly. We're like living stones that he's forming together into a temple, into a holy priesthood. Like it's only when we come together that we are the body of Christ. And this armor, which really is Jesus Christ is what we put. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the ways that what putting on Jesus looks like. So the temptation is to think, i got to put this on. I'm going to be in a fight today. I have to wear all this stuff. And you know what? Like, hopefully, you know, hopefully somebody's here to help me, but I have to do this. And it's like, once you think you have to fight your own battle by yourself, you've lost. And you're going to lose the way Goliath beats you. You won't even fight him. He'll just wear you out thinking about it. You'll lose because you're thinking about it. When you think about your issues as an individual, you're already losing because you're tired, even before the fight even starts. Okay? Let's see. Armor is not for each person, but for the church as a whole. David taking off Saul's armor is how we put on the armor of God. So how do you put the armor of God on? You take off the armor of conventional violence. The way, when we hear armor, we think Saul's armor. The way that Paul is talking about armor is a demystifying of the way that we view armor. So Saul's armor, when we, when we think about putting on the sword of the spirit, we think about taking Saul's sword, the sword that we're going to use to slice Satan's ear off, which Peter did think, and we'll get to that in a second. But this is demystifying. The way you put on the armor of God is you put on Jesus. And the way you put on Jesus is you get defenseless. You get vulnerable. You go in this weakness. Gideon is... Hiding, and the angel says, Go in the strength of yours. 
what strength are you talking about? This fear that you have, of like this this desire that you have to not be seen, that what that's what makes you a leader. I mean, should we all say it together? His strength is made perfect in. It's true. That's the problem. Nobody wants it to be true. It's true. So. Saul's armor has to come off. And we can't treat the armor of God like it's the better version of Saul's armor. The armor of God is the opposite of Saul's armor. It's a gun that shoots flowers. It makes gardens. It doesn't destroy things. It's the opposite. We have treated Jesus... Like he's our Goliath, and we've acted like the Philistines when it comes to spiritual warfare. We've said, come fight our Jesus. If you could beat him, then we'll be your servants, but you're not going to be able to. You're going to end up being our servants. We've had this militaristic view, and we've almost acted just like the Philistines, except our Goliath is Jesus. And we say to the unsaved, oh, you can't outwit him. Come have an argument. Let's have apologetics. Let's debate the resurrection. Let me show you how my lifestyle is better than yours, and then you're going to want to adopt mine. It's been militaristic. We've treated Jesus like he's Goliath, and we've acted like the Philistines. If you can beat him, then we'll be your servants. But we know you can't. Even the grave can't beat him. And whenever we speak in those militaristic... We get this like sense. It's almost like seeing a flyover at a football game. You get this sense... And it's not wrong to have it, but it gets too mystical. And it, and it begins to distort what the actual character of Jesus is meant to be. So last thing I'll say about this, and then we're going to rip through the temptations. <laughs> Satan offers Jesus kingdoms. We have to hear this. Satan offers Jesus kingdoms. And I've heard it taught. This is what I heard growing up. That Satan tried to offer Jesus what already belonged to him. Have you heard this? <laughs> Satan tried to offer Jesus what was already Jesus's. That's not the case at all. You ready? Satan tried to offer Jesus kingdoms of the earth. But Jesus came to rescue us from the kingdoms of the earth. Those kingdoms do not belong to Jesus. Because he's not a king like those kingdoms. He came to rescue us and destroy those kingdoms. That's why one of the final verses in the Bible is the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. So Satan's offering Jesus something that looks like what belongs to Jesus. But Jesus knows the way that those kingdoms operate, operate on violence. And that's not how my kingdom operates. He says, until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. But the implication is that now Elijah has come. The peacemaker has come. The one who restores fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. Until now it has suffered violence, but no more. Because the nonviolent one has come, and I'm going to end violence with my life. So our, the number one temptation of the devil is not to make our heads spin around and send us up into the corner of a room speaking in weird languages. The number one temptation of the devil is to get us to think that we have to be militaristic and violent in order to defeat sin and sinners. And even the sin in our own self. 
And that's what we're going to see is not the case here. A little bit of an intro there. Everybody good? A little maybe slightly different than we've heard. If you've been here for the last five or six years, you've heard me talk like this. But this was just a chance to put it all together. I mean, these, the connection of those verses, like David going to, uh, I just got to say one more thing, so it's cool. <laughs> David going, David picks up stones. What's the first temptation? What's the first temptation of Jesus? To do what? Make the bread into the stones into bread. St. Augustine says, maybe the devil saw the son of David and saw stones and thought, I hope he doesn't pick those up. Hit me in the head with them. Let me ask him to turn them to bread. But then another church father, I think it was Cyprian, said something very interesting. He says, in the Eucharist, Jesus finally does turn stone into bread. Jesus finally does take the stones of violence and says to the army of God, the church, no longer do we throw rocks at the enemy, but now we feed them bread. Wow. This is the change he's making. This is the change, and then you're like, right away, you're like, well, they're going to they're gonna kill him if they do that. We're going to get taken advantage of. It's almost Lent. The answer is yes. Good Friday, Holy Saturday, they took advantage of him. On Sunday, we see what he did with being taken advantage of. He got taken advantage of and then made it our advantage. Right? So eventually he does turn stones into bread. He turns David's five smooth stones into the bread of the Eucharist. So we don't throw things at people anymore. We feed them. Okay. Thoughts, comments, dirty remarks? Want to stone me? Throw things at me? The irony would be amazing. Pastor stoned by his congregation after saying that we should eat bread instead of throwing rocks. The elect. All right. Here we go. Temptation number two. The armor of God. Here we go. Belt of truth. Belt of truth. Temptation number two with the belt of truth. The temptation to view the belt of truth is to weaponize truth as a way of forcing others to see what you see. I've heard people say, I love my pastor because he preaches truth. How do you know? He preaches what he thinks is truth. She preaches what she thinks is truth. But how do you know? How do you know that everything I just said is not crap? I'm just kidding. It might be. But you should think that sometimes. I do. It's not funny. We cannot think that just because we think we wrapped a head around something that it is the entire truth. Because it's not. It's the part of it that God wants us to know today. But it's not the whole thing ever. Ever. And we need to know that. That's why we need to be progressively always learning because there isn't something that we could say that sums it all up. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to people who go to work and have kids and stuff. Like, there is nothing you're going to say tomorrow that sums up everything that is the truthiness of what it is you're trying to communicate to your kids, your family, your spouse at work. You're going to learn truth as you go. And the minute we think we have it summed up in a definition... We don't, we don't love with that. We throw it at people. So we weaponize truth as a way of forcing others to see what you see. But here's the funny thing. The, first of all, the belt is not a weapon. 
In my house growing up, it was. In my house growing up, it was. But in the armor of God, it's not. My parents were late. I, w- I wish they could have learned this earlier. My grandfather one time, I'll never forget, and I, I wrote this in my notes, my grandfather went to spank me and my cousin Brett. And he ripped off his belt. And he ripped it off like he had ripped off a belt a time or two. Like, like he ripped it off, and then his pants fell down. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. But here's the funny thing. The belt is not a weapon. Listen. But the belt is not a weapon. It's the item that holds everything else together from coming undone. Truth is not a weapon. It's what holds us together. It's what keeps our clothes on as the church. The belt of truth is not a weapon. It's a promise. It's Jesus saying, as long as you're with me, you will not come apart. It holds the armor. It holds the body together. It's not something we force at people, otherwise our pants will fall down. It's what holds us together to go into the uncertainties of our life and the world and not be taken apart by them. When Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? Jesus doesn't answer the question, but goes to the cross and shows him. What is truth? Pilate's saying, I'm coming undone. What is truth? And Jesus goes to the cross and fastens Pilate to himself like a belt and says, I will never let you go. You will always be held to me. That's truth. Truth isn't your might. In in, in the passion of the Christ, Pontius Pilate says, my truth is that if that mob doesn't stop yelling, Caesar's going to cut my head off. That's my truth. And Jesus is saying, truth is the fact that I'm going to hold you together. When you stop trying to hold yourself together, I'm going to hold you together. The truth that we need to be showing the unsaved world is not how accurate the Bible is. The Bible is written for believers, not unbelievers. It's to hold us together and teach us how to sit with tax collectors and sinners in a way where they invite us over again. Truth is what holds us together so that we can go into a very stormy and uncertain world and not come apart. Amen. But we're tempted to weaponize it as a way of forcing other people to see what we see. Be what we see. Live what we see. That's why the belt is the last thing you put on, but Paul talks about it first. He talks about it first because it's the most important of everything else. It holds all this other stuff together. Take it off to hit somebody with it, and all the armor falls flat. I'll have a dramatic sip of my latte that Ian made me earlier. <laughs> Wonderful guy. Thank you. We sometimes use truth because we see the false securities in other people. Has anybody encountered false security in somebody else? Come on. We have all the time? Yes. And we want to use truth to sort of get somebody out of the false securities that they're in. 
But something happens. If we remove, even if it's false security that somebody else is living in, if we remove their security too fast, you could, have, you could cause somebody to fall apart. Right? Like, you've heard me say this. Um, where your treasure is, there your heart. So when you find somebody's treasure, and it's not Jesus, you find their treasure, it's lust, it's education, it's money, it's their own self-expression, whatever it is. You find somebody's false security, but Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your If you take their treasure and treasure chest and smash it, what are you doing to their heart? So you have to be careful. Truth is what guides us to be surgical and gentle and humble and meek and mild before the idols of other people because their life is attached to them. Smash an idol and you smash the person. Slowly wean them off. For every little thing that they don't do, they replace it with something better, slowly. Right? Richard Rohr said, don't tear down what other people have built. Just build something much more beautiful next to it. And eventually they'll move out. Okay. We're never going to get through this. So many things. And a lot. Temptation three? Go to temptation three. Temptation three. Breastplate of righteousness. To weaponize morality, listen, for converting and or defending against others. To weaponize morality. Again, we are tempted to think that either my morality is going to convert somebody else, or I need to protect my morality against the dirtiness of somebody else. And like the funny joke is, and we've all heard it a billion times, now that we're Christians, we have white gloves on. And if you wear white gloves and you touch a greasy, dirty engine, boy, the engine isn't clean, your gloves are just dirty. Not true with Jesus. When Jesus touched a leper, did Jesus' hands have leprosy on them? No, his white gloves stayed white, and so did the leprosy of the other person get healed. Jesus is the only one who could wear white gloves and touch a dirty engine, and the engine is now as clean as his gloves. Right? right? And so, the breastplate of righteousness, we're tempted to see it as our righteousness. But here's the thing. We don't have righteousness. The breastplate is not the soldier. It's something the soldier puts on to protect something weak. I wear Jesus' righteousness, you ready? To protect my unrighteousness. I cover my unrighteousness with his righteousness so that my unrighteousness has time to become righteousness. It's going to take my whole life for this process to happen, and it won't be until after I'm gone and Jesus finally judges me that I'm judged righteous. In the meantime... My heart, the unrighteous thing that it is, is susceptible to all kinds of attacks, so I put on something that's not me. I put on his righteousness, not mine. When we think that we have righteousness apart from Jesus, all that is is morality, and good morals does not equal righteousness. Otherwise, the Pharisees would have been righteous. But Jesus says, unless your righteousness does what? That of the most moral people ever to walk the face of the earth. It's not about morality. It's about righteousness. 
And what is righteousness? It's being made right with God. You can be moral and not be right with God. Yes, so the breastplate of righteousness is actually a confession of our own weakness and the fact that we need something to be put over us. But Satan wants us to think that putting on the breastplate of righteousness is me getting more moral. If that's the case, I don't know where the breastplate of righteousness is. I lost it. The breastplate is really grace, then. Yes. The breastplate is grace. It's faith. It's Jesus. It's, it's throw tons of words on it. It's not us, it's him. And if we get to wear it, until we are one day made it with him. Yes, okay. That's everything there? Alright. Love does what? Covers sin. The breastplate is God's love covering a multitude of sin. That's what the breastplate does. And that's what we announce as the gospel. The gospel is not, if you get better, you'll be right with God. The gospel is, he's going to protect everything wrong with you. And he's going to guard it so that you can slowly develop your Christian life for the rest of your life. And anywhere where there's a weakness, it's covered by the blood of righteousness. This is why Aaron and the priests wore the stones on their... Because that's... They, they, the priest bears the sins of the people on his... You see this? It's not morality. It's better than that. It's more important than that. It was going to be wrong. It was going to be gone. Temptation 4. Temptation 4. Good one. Good one, Satan. It's a good temptation. The shoes. You know, I, I have... Chris's, Chris Green's wife made a joke today. Me and Chris were talking about this on the phone. And Julie Green, Chris's wife, came in and goes, Guys, why are you working so hard? And Chris is like, what are you talking about? And she's like, there's probably a VeggieTales episode that tells you this entire thing. <laughs> somewhere, or a Superbook episode that tells you this entire thing. I, I have been immersed in this ever since I grew up. And I never noticed this before. It's the shoes that are put on for the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Okay? So there's a, we, there, first of all, we should be ready. We shouldn't just be going, number one. And we should be ready. And as Chris Green said, some of us have put, the, put the shoes on and we started running and other people haven't put the shoes on yet. The shoes need to be on, but we can't move. We have to be ready. And when we move, the spirit of our moving should be brought about by the gospel of peace, not urgency. But pastor, if they have an aneurysm right now, I have to go tell everybody. That's urgency. That's not gospel of peace. But we'll get to that in a second. What's the weapon? The, the temptation is to weaponize witnessing, listen to me, this is so important for everybody, weaponized witnessing, mistaking patience as allowance. Satan wants us to mistake patience and see it as allowance. And what I mean is this, there's so much wrong with Jacqueline. And I need to tell Jacqueline everything right now that is wrong with her, 
Because if I don't tell her everything that's wrong with her, that's the same as me telling her that everything that's wrong with her is actually right. We've all felt this temptation before with people, especially people who are not saved or Christian people who are struggling. We see what's wrong, and it's like, I just have to find a way to tell them. I just have to find a way to tell them. They need to know that I know. <laughs> so whether it's a letter I write or the way that I start a conversation to get to it, or maybe I'm asked to pray and I pray a prayer and I'm really trying to lead them to the Lord in the prayer, but it's Thanksgiving and it's like, well, it's like whatever it is, we feel like we can't shut our mouth. If somebody says something that's wrong, we can't just enjoy them. We have to tell them because we don't, we have shoes on. But they're not shoes that are making us ready through peace. It's shoes that are making us ready through fear and urgency. If I don't tell them, if I, if I have them over, and I don't find a way to tell them that their lifestyle is wrong, they're going to think that I'm saying it's right. Not if you're a good Christian, they're not. If somebody comes over my house with a terrible, terrible moral issue, and I've been living my life right, I don't need to tell them that I disagree with it. They should know I don't and be surprised that I didn't bring it up. And leave saying, maybe his house is safer than I thought it was. Because I know he knows that what I'm doing is wrong. And he just enjoyed dinner with me. Didn't bring it up. Because peace comes first. The very first thing that Jesus says to the disciples on Easter Sunday. These guys have done everything wrong. What's the first thing he says? Peace be with you. First thing he says is, just so you know, I know I'm here. This is awkward for you. There's a lot that happened in the last 72 hours. You probably feel bad about some things. But before I say anything, we're good. That's what peace means. We're good. In the Roman Catholic Church around, you know, we call it the meet and greet. They call it passing the peace. The signs of the peace. And what they're doing is, they're essentially saying, before you come to the Lord's table, look at everybody that you can look at right now and say, we're good. We're good. There's a lot of issues and stuff, but we're good. Right? One of the things me and Jacqueline say in terms of our marriage is, we don't always agree with each other, but we always agree about each other. We don't always agree with each other, but we do agree about each other. So even if there's like a season where we're just not on the same page, the thing that we always know that's holding it all up is that we agree on each other. That doesn't change. And that allows us to disagree with each other and learn. It, it allows Jacqueline to learn that I was probably right. And that takes time. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's just time. <laughs> there's shoes for the readiness brought about by the gospel of peace. If you're about to talk to somebody or even talk to your own self, because we do have to witness to ourselves. And it's coming from a place of urgency and fear or defensiveness. It's not time to move yet. Move when it's going to be peacemaking. And peacemaking is, we're good. It's Jesus saying, where are those who condemn you? No one condemns you, neither do I condemn you. Now I'll say go and sin no more. It's not that he doesn't bring up the sin. It's just that first he says, peace be with you. Just know, I know what you're doing, but I'm not going to bring that up first. The first thing I want you to know is I'm good with you while you're committing adultery. Mm. Now I can tell you, go and sin no more. 
It's not like he doesn't address the adultery. But notice what he does do. He says, neither do I condemn you. He speaks personally to her. But then he says, go and sin. He speaks generally about what she did, but specific about her. He's like, I love you, Jacqueline. Now, just don't go do that thing you were doing. Mm-hmm. He won't even dignify it by being specific about it. Um, also, the verses that we've talked about before when he sends the disciples two by two to all the villages and the houses, and the first thing they're supposed to say is that they bring peace. Yes. Right. And when they don't receive you, he says, let your peace return to you. Still don't be urgent or violent or militaristic or aggressive or combative or argumentative. I haven't learned this yet. I know. Sitting here. He says, if they're willing to have a meal with you, sit down and have the meal. Tell them that peace is with them. Yep. And if they don't receive you, let your peace return to you. Yeah. But never be in a state of fear, panic, or urgency. Yeah. I remember once years ago when um, Randall Worley was here and he was teaching about love. It was a Thursday night. And um, he, some people probably have heard this story, he was preaching about how, how to love, what it meant. And it was so fresh and so new. I felt like God was just giving such a revelation and just changing us. And I went out after and talked to Michael and I said, did you hear what he said? And he said, yes, I did. When we went home, God said to me, Daniel was in our house, and that's what God said to me, go home and just sit and watch a movie with him. Yeah. And we had so much concentrated on the letter of the law yep. that it made a wall around him, a wall around us that we could not break through. But God came with the revelation of his love for us to be able to love and offer that to him. And I sat there and watched a movie that had all these curse words and all these immoral things in them. That it was like, who cares? He looked at me a couple of times, wondering, like, you're still here? (laughs) And it was like God had just freed us from that crap that had messed up and changed. It just started to change things. It was wonderful. That's exactly it. You you went home that day with shoes on that were made ready by the gospel of peace. Yep, yep. It's hard. Because you know that the things that are wrong are hurting the person. You know they are. It's not just that you want to be right. It's that it's hurting the person. And like, I I can know, I mean, just in my life, Jesus let things hurt me for a really long time. Yes. I don't get it. I don't have an answer for it. But he's patient. But patience is not allowance. But Satan wants us to think it is. Don't say anything, Helen. They're going to think that what they're doing is right. We're not supposed to think that way. That is a way, that's a demonic way of thinking. Yeah. I wrote down, offer people peace before judgment. People don't need to hear they are wrong. They need to be loved out of it. And yes. I say that to say this, like, when I used to make mistakes in the past, my mother was still alive, but there were times, she was a correctional officer, she was tough. There were times I'd go home and she'd, like, go off, and that, like, chased me away more, but... There was times I would go home and she would just like love me anyway. Yep. Like that was there's more conviction in that love and more change in that love than there ever was with the anger part. That's right. So there's in Luke when Peter denies Jesus for the third time, it says that Jesus turned and looked at him. Yes. Didn't say anything. 
How many of us would have been like, did you hear the rooster? <laughs> what, what did I just say? I would have felt so validated. I would have been hyped. Like, hold on, guys. Just hold on. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Did you hear the rooster? Like, he just looks at him. And Peter weeps bitterly. And then the next time he addresses it, it's, do you love me? And it's ripping him up. In a good way. It says, by the time he asked the third time, it says, Peter grieved that he asked him a third time. It, the love got to him, not the threat. He meets Judas. What does he call him? Friend. That kills him. That was hell for Judas right there. That was hell. Refining him immediately. Kills you. Kills you with love. Okay. Temptation 5. Almost there. Almost there. Shield of faith. Shield of faith. To weaponize, this is the temptation with the shield of faith. To weaponize results as the measure of our value and strength. To weaponize results as the measure and value of our strength. I need to see results that I can see with my eyes to know that I'm doing a good job as a pastor. To know that I'm doing a good job as a father. To know that I'm doing a good job as a husband and a friend. If I don't see something that I can point to, you ready? Like, unfortunately, David, I need to take a census so that I can see the numbers and know how I'm doing. Not good. Not good. Because does faith come by seeing? No. No. Listen. The shield is an item that is not you, but protects something in you far weaker than it. So the helmet protects the head, and the breastplate protects the chest, and the shoes, especially the shoes that he's talking about, are also like shin guard shoes too. It's not just like sneakers, not dope sneakers like mine right now. It's like shin guard ones. And it, de- it protects your legs and it de- protects your shins. What does the shield protect? It protects your eyes. It protects your face. That's what a shield does. It protects your face. And here's the thing. The shield of faith is meant to keep you from seeing. Yes, that's what I just said. It's meant to keep you from seeing. We want to see And then we'll believe. And not about Jesus, about our own worth and value. I need to see in the behavior of my children that I'm a good parent. And Jesus is like, put that shield up so you can't see anymore. Well, what does that mean? I'm going to show you from a clip from the movie 300. (laughs) Speaking of secular movies that I watch. Watch this clip. A little weird. But here it is. Here come some arrows. Just a couple. Cowards! <laughs> <laughs> 
to weaponize correct thoughts in us and others, earning us or them various salvations. Whether it's salvation in general, believe the right things about Jesus and you'll be saved. Listen, Salem, I don't believe the right things about Jesus yet. I'm learning every day more right things about Jesus. I'm learning things that I've said about Jesus that are wrong. Breathe. It's going to happen to everybody. Every disciple said a bunch of stuff about Jesus that was wrong. Their whole entire gospel. Right? Peter, don't go die. You're not supposed to die. It's literally the thing that I came here to do. Like the one thing that I came here to do. But we weaponize correct thoughts in ourselves or in others because I'll get out of this situation when I learn to think better. I'll get out of this when I learn to think better. And that first thing we need to know is, is thinking right important? Yes. But salvation is something that we put on to protect ourselves. It's not something that we earn. It's something that protects us. Yeah. I know it's a lot of times in my life uh, Jesus has taught me the right thing by allowing me to learn the wrong thing first. He happens. I mean, this is what this is what I'm going to talk about on Sunday, by the way. He exists in the wrong things. So then when we inevitably get there, we meet him. It's like, thank God. He's, Jesus is in all the wrong places because he wants to be where we're going. He's never the come over here person. He's like, I'm, I'm, and you're, you're going to inevitably go to this bad place that I told you not to go to. But I'm just going to get there first and wait for you there. You know what I mean? And then we'll, hang, we'll finally, oh, fancy meeting you here. Of all the gin joints in all the world. Jesus, you walked into them. See, so here's the thing. Jesus protects our thinking from the thoughts that say our thinking is what earns us salvation or gets us in or out of things. I know a lot about the church that I pastor specifically. Things about the church that other people can come here all the time they don't know. And one of the things about Salem, we overthink everything. I mean, we lead the league in overthinking here. This is what we do best. We overthink. We analyze this, analyze that, and then watch the movies again and again and again. We overthink so much. Like whenever I'm having a conversation, and, and even my spiritual director is like, "Do you stop? Stop what? <laughs> Whatever all that was? Like holy smokes! He's always like, just chill for a second, please." And literally one time, Brother Randy's like, "Here's the thing." Uh, he says, "He goes, you, you do you think I'm a good thinker?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he's like, you think more than me. <laughs> but also, that was clever thinking there, guy. So, what are you going to do? But yes, it's, it's not... Our, Jesus' goal for us is not for us to have the correct thoughts about him. It's for us to be in a relationship where we are learning him. Like, I am in love with Jacqueline, and she is in love with me. And we don't have the correct thoughts about each other all the time. But that has nothing to do with how in love with each other we are. Like in, in, in the Advent devotional, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the most mysterious people in the world are the ones you that are the closest to you. And back in the 40s, he said, look at the news. 
when you don't know people, like when you don't know the president, you got all these opinions about them that are very specific. But when it comes to the person you know the most, you know nothing about each other. I'm so surprised that you would say that. Why am I surprised? Because I thought I knew you. And I didn't think you would say that. Even sometimes when I do good things, Jacqueline's like, wow. I'm like, oof. <laughs> didn't expect me to do that. Right? The people that we're the closest to are the greatest mysteries to us because being close to somebody is never fully knowing them, but always getting to know them. Amen. So if the goal is correct thoughts, so what? Correct thoughts about Jesus are nothing in comparison to being in love with him. That's right. That's right. I don't understand my wife, y'all. But I'm in love with her. It's silly, but it's very, very true. Yeah. Can you talk briefly about... Um, briefly? Probably not. <laughs> Can you talk briefly or in depth about what salvation is? Because I think in the past we thought salvation was um, saving us from hell. We're going to heaven. But, yes. but that's not what salvation is. Right. Good question. So... We could have a we could have a, our own Bible study on this, but salvation there's there's two things that salvation isn't. Salvation is not Jesus saving. Number one, tell your friends this. Go and tell people I said this. Salvation is not Jesus saving you from the Father, because then there's no such thing as the Trinity, or they're not unified. Jesus didn't come to save you from his death. Jesus came to show us what his dad always thinks of us. Right? And so we've all heard the courtroom model of like the father is the judge and the Holy Spirit's the bailiff and like we're in trouble and Satan's the prosecutioner and Jesus runs into the courtroom and says, make, make me guilty. Dad, make me guilty so, and, and kill me instead of killing them. And God's and the father's like, you're right. I'll change my mind and kill you instead. Crumple that up. Take a few practice shots and just throw it in the garbage and just practice your, your free throws. That's trash. Jesus did not come to change God's mind. Jesus reveals God's mind. The Holy right. Spirit is right. one. Amen. They agree with each other. Amen. So if Jesus agrees on you, then the Father always has, and he doesn't change, which means there was never a point where he didn't agree with you, and then Jesus made him. That's not how it works. That's heresy. That's literally heresy. Jesus also didn't save us from hell, because hell was, like, we, we, we most of us actually probably have heard that we deserve hell, but Jesus came to give us what we don't deserve. We deserve heaven from the beginning, and Jesus came to keep preserving that in us. So the reality is, and N.T. Wright and David Bentley Hart say the best, the conversation should never be, what did he save us from? The conversation should always be, what did he save us for? He saved us for life and life more abundantly, and to be heralds of the kingdom of God. We have made hell and sin the biggest furniture on the stage 
And it's like, he came to sin. Like, this is so powerful, and sin is so powerful, and hell is so big and powerful that Jesus had to come charging in. He's going to make a spectacle of all of it. Heaven is big and powerful. Right? He, came, he didn't come to save us from. He came to save us for. For. And so salvation is the announcement that we are and always have been right with God through Jesus Christ, who's been slain since when? Foundation of the world. The fall of Adam and Eve exists under the cross. That's why when they sin, God is in the garden. Not separated from them because Jesus' blood is already working. Nothing changed in Adam and Eve's relationship with God. He was still there talking to them the way he was the day before. Are they talking about different things now? Yes. Have they, are they on a new journey with each other? Yes. But has their standing before him changed? Not at all. He's still there. He's still protecting. He's still serving. He's still covering. So salvation is what Jesus came to save us for. He came to save us for each other, for the Father, for the world, for the tangible items of creation itself. He came to save us for these things. He came to save us for stewardship, for service, for love. Yes. Well, yeah, we could we could do other Bible studies on salvation and how it all works and where does freedom and choice and all that come into play. We have, we have a fascinating discussion on that. I will need a latte or two before that one, but we have a fascinating discussion on that. There will be some overthinking going on if I haven't just started some already. And that's, that, that's mild, what we're talking about there. Okay, finally, everyone's favorite, the sword of the spirit. It's a good one. The sword of the spirit. The temptation with the sword of the spirit is to weaponize the Bible by divorcing it from the passion or the cross of Jesus. So I'm going to read you a scripture right now, and I want you to see something really cool. Hebrews. Okay. Hebrews 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Don't, don't switch that. Come back. <laughs> For the word of God, do we agree this is talking about the Word of God? Yes. For the Word of God is living and active, sharp, it's a sword, it's piercing, division, soul, joints, craziness. So now go. And no creature is hidden from what? Yes. Notice it doesn't say no creature is hidden from its sight. Wow. Go back. We've been told the Word of God is the Bible. But go to the next verse. If the word of God was the Bible, then it would say no creature is hidden from its sight. But the word of God is not the Bible. The word of God is always Jesus. John chapter 1. The Bible is a book that is bound together with a lot of important things in it. The Bible only becomes scripture when the cross of Jesus is interpreting every page of it. Jesus himself says, you 
search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they bear witness about me. In other words, what makes scripture scripture is only when it's bearing witness to the person of Jesus Christ. If somebody is using the Bible, the words on, of, of scripture, in a way that is condemning and hurting people, what they're using is not scripture, it's the Bible. It's not holy. It's the book called the Bible that like Barnes and Noble will call the Bible. It's scripture when Jesus is being made manifest in it. The road to Emmaus. He interpreted to us all the scriptures, which at that time is only what we would call the Old Testament. They didn't have Philippians yet. This is kind of mind-blowing stuff to us. He interpreted to them the scriptures, those things what? Concerning himself. Because that's the only thing that makes them scripture. And the cross is the fullness of what it means to understand Jesus. So the Bible talks about Jesus, and Jesus is most fully and really only understood through the cross. That's why Paul says, I have come. Now Paul preaches a lot of things, right? But he says, I have preached nothing among you except what? Christ and Him crucified. Everything I've ever preached is Christ and Him crucified. So if I'm talking about the spiritual gifts, it's one way of talking about Jesus crucified. If I'm talking about husbands and wives and who obeys who and children and masters and slaves and finances and Sarah and Hagar and whatever he's talking about, every line of it is Christ and Him crucified. Because that's the only thing that makes Scripture holy. It's Christ and Him crucified. The only thing that makes David and Goliath's stories holy is when we realize Jesus is the true and better David, who doesn't throw stones but becomes the rock himself. Right? Go ahead. Is that why in John it says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? Yes. Same thing? Yes, and there, there are different words for the word word, right? And uh, we don't need to get into all that. Right. But be, if, when we open these pages... The goal is for us to find Jesus in them and for Jesus to find us through them. That's why we open it. It's the only thing that makes it different than anything else. He was he saying, Lo, behold, I come in the volume of the book, right? When we use the text or, uh, against ourselves or against other people, and we're not doing it with the humility of the cross. We are Peter in the garden, cutting Malchus's ear off. Faith comes by ear. Jesus heals the ear and says, this is not what the sword of the Spirit does. I can tell you in my life, prior to my reawakening to what all this means, I used the Bible in a way that made people stop hearing. You're right. Fine. But I'm done. You got me. But I'm done. It's not the Bible when you're using it that way. It's a book that Barnes & Noble tells you is the Bible. But it's only Holy Scripture when Jesus is coming out of it. When Jesus is being made manifest in it. Satan wants us to hold it, but what does Jesus do with swords? What's he do with every sword? The sword of the Spirit is a plowshare. We use this 
to cultivate ourselves. We use this to cultivate each other. We use this to learn how to minister to a world that doesn't understand us. We don't throw this at them. This is for believers. This teaches believers how to approach unbelievers by showing us who? Jesus. And the way he approached non-believers. But this is for us. The four, literally, the four Gospels were written for the church. Because, this is the last thing I'll say, 827, three minutes. I'm going to score a lot of points in the last three minutes of the When Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he revealed to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. At that moment, Every, if you only have the Old Testament, which is all they had at that point, right? It's an indisputable fact. None of the Gospels were written yet. None of the Epistles were written yet. Genesis to Malachi is enough to understand Jesus. The whole first 300 years of the church understood Jesus on Genesis to Malachi and some floating around letters. Then one day when there was enough of those letters and enough copies of them, the church put them together and called them the Bible. And debated it. And debated it. When Paul says all scriptures breathed out by God, what scriptures is he talking? He's not talking about what he just said. We call that the Bible now, but in his mind, it was the Old Testament. He was saying everything in Genesis is enough to believe Jesus. When we took his writings and said it's also scripture, the church did that. And that's fine, and it's holy because the church did it. So, like, just last second shot. <laughs> Two seconds left, I got the ball. Isolation. I'm going to try this one. <laughs> In him we live and... Right? In him we live and move and have our being. Now, again, in any Bible, it'll say that that is a quote from a Greek poet. And his name was, does anybody know? Epimenides. So there was a poem that existed in secular culture, and in that poem it said, in him we live and move and have our being, and that poem was about, like, a secular pagan god. So when Epimenides wrote it, was he right? Was he right? No! He was writing it about a different god. Wow. Call it Zeus. Mm. Did Epimenides live and breathe and have his being in Zeus? No. So if you found that in a book of Greek poetry and you read, in him we live and move and have our being, in a, in a book of Greek poetry, it wouldn't be scripture. But when you read it in Acts, it is scripture. Well, what makes it not scripture here, where it existed first, it's extra-biblical. But what makes it scripture is the hymn changed. The hymn in the Greek book wasn't Jesus. Therefore, it's not scripture. But the hymn, when it's restated in Acts, being Jesus, now it's scripture. Because Jesus is what makes it scripture. And on and on and on it goes. For the, for the text, for the canon. So, well, Pastor, so many questions. What, what do I do with it? Read it, 
and read it to other people and live it and talk to other people about it in the spirit of Good Friday. And you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. You got Christians throwing all of Paul's sin lists out there at the non-Christian world. It's not even for them. It's for us to learn. And when Paul was given those lists, he wasn't giving them to people outside of the church. He was talking to Christians about not living that way. We assume he was talking about the world. He was talking to the church about the church's issues. So it has to be done in the spirit of Good Friday. And it's not for us to put into a sling and hurl at the world. It's to heal our soul. That we can address people of different faiths and different lifestyles with the humility that Christ sat with the tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and Pontius Pilate and King Herod and all those people with. So that's the beginning of spiritual warfare. It's not about the exorcism of Emily Rose or the exorcist. It's first and foremost about these subtle little things where Satan wants us to take Christian things and use them one degree wrong over ourselves and over other people. And if he can just get the church to be one degree off, which and that one degree is individualized, we will go in the wrong direction for 1,500 years. Let's stand to Jesus, I pray that with all of this information, number one, we submit all of this to you for our learning and correction. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that in three years we do this again, I pray that the information is new and fresh, kinks have been worked out, new things are seen, we can say things better than we said them today, think about them better than we did today, teach them better than we did today. And I pray for everybody here, or anybody who's going to hear this on the podcast. I just pray, Heavenly Father, that we would not try to memorize or regurgitate this, but that you would tell us each one area of what was said tonight that we can pivot on and bring health to all of these holy stones that are being knit together into the body of Christ. Show me, Father God, of everything that was said today. Show me this week, this month, this year, one area where I'm falling into any of these temptations. And help me change so that the temple could be a little bit stronger. And I pray that if each of us do that, if each of us finds one thing that we can change, that together we will be becoming a holy temple that sanctifies the things that are brought into it. And so we thank you for that. And we pray that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.